0: Good morning. We're continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Colossians. The past few weeks together we've seen how this church was a bit rattled by a new false teaching that has come up in their midst. And this false teaching is taking their focus away from Christ and trying to rope in and put in as many new practices that they can in hopes to attain this spiritual fullness, to get the blessings of, uh, of this life now. Um, and so, essentially, what they're saying is just add a little bit of this, you know, subscribe to this diet, um, take on these regulations, take in this philosophy. Even, they even dabbled with mixing in a little bit of angel worship. And essentially, what they're saying is graduate from your elementary school lessons on Jesus And come over here to get the graduate level school on on wisdom on this life and spirituality. And so, thus far in this letter, uh, Paul has, in a roundabout way, confronted these errors. But now, he faces them head on in verses 15 through 23. And so, you could say this is the message that Paul wants to get across to the Colossians. He wants to correct these errors that they're hearing by exalting Christ before their eyes. So, do you know how the U.S. Treasury Department is able to spot counterfeits? They spend zero time looking at the different fakes, but they spend all their time looking at the true, the original, the real $100 bill or whatever bill they're they're studying. And they become acquainted with every little detail about that bill. So that when anything counter to that, anything false, anything that's off, they're they're able to spot it immediately. They can see it. They they see something's off and they can tell it quickly. So the same thing is going on here with Paul. Paul doesn't spend any time in his letter trying to pick apart the false teaching, the, the Colossian heresy. But he spends all his time... Directing our gaze to Jesus Christ. Not only that we might spot the errors that, these, that, that the world can present to us, but also that we might rejoice in Christ. You see, this text is so highly structured, so poetic in its original Greek, that scholars are convinced that this is an early Christian hymn. So, Paul is either singing a hymn that was already created that the Colossians already knew, or Paul wrote this hymn himself, which is, I think it's pretty plausible to believe that, because Paul at this time was under house, Roman house arrest. He was in prison, and so he had a lot of creative, you know, he had a lot of, da- a lot of downtime, a lot of creative freedom to uh, pen this great work. So when Paul exalts Christ to the Colossians, he can't help but sing, To be swept up in the joy and the wonder and the sweetness of this truth. This truth that our sufficient Savior is none other than our Supreme Lord. And so, as we go to our text, um, let's pray together as we consider it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time this morning. We pray that you would speak through your word. As your word says, the unfolding of your word gives light. And so, we pray that you would come and light our hearts, that we might see Jesus and and glory in him. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Colossians chapter 1, starting verse 15. He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God, it stands forever. Um, <clears throat> the Sandlot, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, I don't know if you've seen it, but um, it's my favorite because it came out in the 90s when I was growing up. And it was all about boys playing baseball in the summer, which is pretty much all me and my friends did growing up in the summer. So it's a movie that kind of encapsulates my own childhood. And so in this movie, The Sandlot, the main character is named Scotty Smalls. And so Scotty is an awkward, unathletic, shy kid who moves into a new town with his mom and, and new stepdad. And he doesn't know anyone And so, he'd rather play Legos inside than risk the potential embarrassment of going outside to play baseball and not make friends and failing. But his mom is worried about him, so his mom kicks him out of the house and forces him out. So, it's painful to watch, but Scotty does what we all do, uh, what's true of all of us in our sinful hearts. We, We feel deep down that there's this Insufficiency. There's this inadequacy. We, we aren't sufficient in and of ourselves. So what do we do? We fake it. We fear that if people see the real me, they'd reject me. And so I need to pro- project a version of myself that is sufficient, that appears sufficient and worthy and acceptable. And so Scotty pretends to be proficient in baseball. And it gets him into even deeper trouble and embarrassment. And so, we do the same thing. We project a proficiency in baseball or whatever to try to avoid this rejection that we fear. And so, I want to, that, So that's the setup. But there's a moment in this movie early on when even though Scotty is pretending, you know he's going to be okay. Why? Why is that? It's because he meets Benny the Jet Rodriguez He's the coolest guy in the neighborhood. He's the best baseball player in the neighborhood, and he takes Scotty under his wing. And so, though Scotty didn't have any social skills, Benny was his committed friend. And though Scotty didn't have any baseball skills, Benny was committed to teach him. And so, Benny even gave him his own hat and his own gloves. So, you see, by the end of the movie, Scotty is is one of the boys. He's he's a great baseball player, and it was all because of Benny. is is because Benny, though he was himself an established and already cool kid, and already the best baseball player, in his great kindness, he made a condescension to attach himself to Scotty in friendship. And so, what Paul is doing with the Colossians is he's, he's trying to connect these dots. The Colossians. He's saying essentially, Do you realize who just befriended you, who has committed himself to you, who has made an infinite condescension to attach himself to you in friendship? It's Jesus Christ, our our Supreme Lord. You're you're going to be okay. You see, the one who is the Supreme Lord is also your Savior, which means He is your sufficient Savior. He's, you've got everything you need in him. And so the main point I want us to consider together this morning in our time together is this, that Christ's supremacy is your comfort. Christ's supremacy is your comfort. So we'll follow Paul's logic as he goes to the text. We'll first look at Jesus and see God. And second, we'll look at ourselves. We'll look at yourself in Christ and see hope. So first, look at Jesus and see God. We see this in verse 15, where he says, he, being Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. So, we'll stop there to consider that. Paul is saying that Jesus is the invisible God made visible to humanity. This is Christianity's claim, that if you want to know God, if you want to know exactly what he's like, the answer is, look at Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, Hebrews 1, chapter 3, in a parallel passage says, He is the exact imprint of His nature. He's the eternal Son of God who images or reveals the Father to humanity. So let's ask the question what is God like then? And Paul's answer is look at Jesus. And so in the Gospels, you see how Jesus interacts with the sick, with the hurting, with the mourning, with the outcast, with the shameful the people written off by society as insane, demon-possessed. And he does not shrink back from these people. He doesn't shrink back from their sin and their shame and their brokenness, but he is eager to step in their lives. He's eager to reveal his heart of compassion and his power for salvation. And when he encounters illness that no doctor could heal, he could heal it. And when he encounters wind that... You know his disciples are in the boat; they're skilled fishermen, and even they're saying we're doomed. He quiets that wind by his voice, and when he encounters death, death in the, for example, in the in, with his friend Lazarus who had been dead for four days, he raises him from the dead by just speaking it. But, but so that's Jesus. That's the gospel putting on display Jesus, which points us to who God is. But every gospel writer spends the most ink on the passion narrative. All the gospels spend the most time talking about that. Jesus' arrest, his trial, the beatings, the crucifixion. Why? Why does Christianity put so much emphasis on the suffering of Jesus, on the suffering of God? Because this is where we see most clearly who God is. It's at the cross. This is where the, the heart of the Father shines most brightly it's at the cross that we see just how loving God is. That he would take on our sin and take away the sting of death and take it on himself so that we might not suffer it for our sake. And it's there also at the cross that we see most clearly who we are. That Jesus was the only perfect, perfectly loving person who ever walked this earth, yet we killed him. Yet he, he still willingly went to the cross while we were still his enemies, while we were still sinners, to reconcile us to God. Like that, that's who God is. Look at the cross. See our sin. See his love overcoming our sin. That's who he is. So whatever doubt you may bring to the table this morning in your questions about God, or questions about Jesus, Paul's answer is don't go to your imagination to answer those questions. Go to where the Bible points you. Go to Jesus. Look at Jesus and see God. Look look at the cross and see him most clearly. He's there dying to reconcile all things to himself. And so Paul continues to flesh this out in our text. He says, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. So I want to spend a little bit of time on this because that might, might sound confusing. Like is, is Paul saying Jesus is a created, the first created being who creates all other beings? No, he's not saying that because the very next verse says that he's the creator of all. So that, that rules out that interpretation. He's the creator of all things. But what, what does this mean is that he bears the title of firstborn. He bears the status of the firstborn. And in that ancient context, they would have understood this clearly. That the firstborn is the one who inherits all that the father has. The firstborn is is the firstborn son who inherits all that the father has. And so another parallel passage, Hebrews chapter 1, says Jesus is the heir of all things. And so that's what this is saying. Jesus owns all things. He's the chief inheritor of all things. He's the firstborn of all creation. Paul continues in verse 16. He says, he is the creator of all things. All things were made by him and through him and for him. Everything owes its existence, Paul is saying, to Jesus Christ. Everything is a result of his creative power and glory. But did you notice Paul keeps, keeps it pretty generic with this repetition of all things, all things, all things. But he does get specific in one part. When he says, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, what is, what is that? Why does Paul throw out those four things? Um, he throws that out because he's naming the very things that the Colossians are scared of. He's naming the very things the Colossians are, are scared of. So what, is, what does it mean, thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities? Those are all ways of referring to the unseen angelic powers So from the artifacts and the inscriptions and the documents that have been found in Colossae, uh, we know that there was a kind of Jewish, pagan, folk belief system that looked to angels, that called upon angels to help them against evil spirits. Um, And this is why the the term angel worship comes up in in Colossians chapter 2. And it's associated with this false teaching. Paul calls it out. And there's also archaeological findings in Colossae that have found trinkets and necklaces and things that have inscriptions on it about angels. It says, you know, things like, Gabriel, protect the person who, who wears this. And so they found things like this. So this is something in their midst that, that scares them, that, that, that the people commonly turn to. Um, but Paul makes it a point to mention this And say that those very things, the things that you're scared of, are under the lordship of Christ. Christ is superior to them, and Christ is their creator. Christ is their sustainer. Those things that you're scared of, they can't do anything without his permission. Uh, One pastor pointed this out, that Paul is doing what essentially every dad has to do at some point when their kids are scared to go to bed. Um, they're scared to go to sleep at night, and they say something like, "Dad, aren't there like bad people in the world who can break in and and kidnap? Like, isn't that a thing?" And you know, as a dad, you don't want to lie, so you're like, "Yeah, that's a that's a thing." Um, and so, what what's helpful in that moment is not after that to say to cite all the statist- statistics and probabilities of like, you know, it's very low chance this is going to happen to you. So why don't you just go to bed. That doesn't work. Um, the statistics won't help. But what does help is that in that moment, the dad, I don't know, flexes his muscle and says, son, do you see this? Like, they've got to come through me to get to you. Um, and that works. The baby, the, 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 baby the, the son goes to sleep because every son, at least for a year or so, believes that his dad is the strongest person in the world. And so he sleeps soundly. So, you see that supremacy, power, brings comfort in that moment. Nothing can touch you without coming first through me. So, it's the same with Jesus. Nothing can touch you without first passing through Jesus. It's all under his authority. All the things that we're most scared of, the things that you can't see, maybe for us it's not angelic powers, but, but maybe it's cancer. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one, whatever. It can't come to you apart from Jesus's permission. And if he permits it, it is because he is more loving and more wise than we could ever imagine. And he's allowing it to happen for your good, for your sanctification, for his glory. He is the one who's holding the reins of the universe and steering even that for his glory. And so that's why it's incredibly comforting that in the next verse, in verse 17, Paul says, in him, in Jesus, all things hold together. So he's not only the creator of all things, but he is the sustainer of all things. He holds all things together. And so that's why it's comforting that if, if you're a Christian and you receive the bad news that you do not want to receive, you can be, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, you can be afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because you know that he, you know that Jesus is the one who holds up everything. It's not some random supreme deity that you know nothing about. It's Jesus who's holding everything. He's the image of the invisible God. He's the one, the same one who died for you, the same one who rose again for you Is holding all things together and he's holding things he's steering things in a way that it's working out for your good and your sanctification and his glory you see his supremacy is your comfort and so we've looked at verses 15 through 17 thus far that's kind of a picture of Jesus supremacy over creation you could say and now we're coming to verses 18 through 20 which is his supremacy over redemption or to put it another way Jesus, just as Jesus is supreme over the first creation, he's also supreme over the new creation. So, look with me in verse 18. He says, And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, Paul is saying that the same Jesus, who is the CEO of the universe of the cosmos also took up the title head of the body, the church. And let me ask you, does that seem like a, a bit of a downgrade? Do you have to go to the CEO of the of the universe to head of the church? I mean, it kind of doesn't it feel a little bit like a an NFL coach putting on his resume instead of putting NFL coach, he's puts I'm the I'm the coach of my Pee Wee's, you know, my son's Pee Wee football team. Seems like a bit of a downgrade because on the surface, if you look at the church, it's not impressive. It's a group of sinful people who cling to a crucified Messiah. That's what you see on the surface, but what you can't see is that this is the place where the new creation has started. It's in the hearts of believers, and it's spreading all over the world through his gospel, and it's spreading through his church, which he calls his own body. So, he's the head of the church, meaning he has united himself to us. We're united. He gives us leadership and direction. He gives us nourishment and growth as our head. He's our life. He's our authority. We know no other head than him. We have no other source for life than him. But there's also another sense in which Jesus is our head. It's the sense that he has gone before us. And we, the body, follow after him because we're united to him. And so that means all that he did for us counts for us. So he died to sin. So that means we, by virtue of our union with him, have also died with him. He has, died, he has been raised and is alive forevermore. And so are we through our union with him. And so it goes on to say in verse 19, in him the, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell And so we, connected to him, have everything we need for life and godliness. And so on the cross, it says, in verse 20, he completed the work of redemption. And he has taken what was separated. He has has reconciled us to himself, to God. He has has taken what is separated and he has brought us together. That, That Greek word, that's what that Greek word means. It was bringing two things together and restoring fellowship. So he has done that through his cross, making peace by his blood. We have peace with God through his blood. We have a sure hope of resurrection because the text says he is the firstborn from the dead. Our head has gone before us. He has passed through death. He has stepped out of the tomb into resurrection life and shares it now with all who come to him by faith. It's like if you if you've been trapped, if you find yourself trapped in an underground tunnel and you have to dig your way out, you dig and you finally make it to the surface and you break through the surface and see the daylight. And when you get your head and shoulders out at that moment, you know that the hardest and the worst part is over. Your head and shoulders are out, but the rest of your body still at that moment is still in the ground but you can rejoice. You know that your body is still going to be pulled through. The hardest part is over. Um, and Charles Simeon, an Anglican pastor in England in the 1800s, said this. He said, let us rejoice that our holy head has made it through all his sufferings and has triumphed over death. And we, his body, are soon to, to be partakers of his victory. So that's, that's the moment where we are, that the head has... has burst forth into the daylight and he's pulling us through. It's, it's an inevitability. We can go ahead and rejoice that the hardest part is over. So if our head has made it through, we know that we will make it through as well because Christ's supremacy is our comfort, is our salvation. He will not attach himself to you only to cut you off. He who has all power, all supremacy will bring you home all the way to glory because he's sufficient. So we've looked at Jesus and we've seen God. Now Paul directs our attention to look at ourselves in Christ and see hope. So Paul takes all that he's just described, who Jesus is, what he has done, and he applies it to the Colossians in verses 21 through 23. He essentially says, this is who you were apart from Christ. This is who you are now because of Christ. And this is where you are headed If you remain in Christ. So look with me in verse 21 again. He says, And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, this is humanity apart from Christ. We're alienated, disconnected from fellowship with God, we're estranged from the heart of the Father. And not just that, Paul adds on, we're hostile in mind. We're not actually warm towards God at all. We're antagonistic towards Him. And the main way that we are antagonistic towards Him is that we all try to be our own saviors. That's the main way we try to be antagonistic towards Him. We can do that by taking our lives in our own hands and and breaking all the rules. That's probably the obvious way to be alienated and hostile to, to God. But there's another way. There's a way that you can... Reject his salvation, reject uh, the cross of Christ um, by trying to be your own Savior, by trying to keep all the rules, by thinking that you can keep all the rules and presenting that righteousness to God instead. But what you're doing is you're refusing. You're pushing aside the truth of what the cross of Christ is saying to you, that you need nothing short of the death of the Son of God to save you. That's how bad off you are. That's how serious your condition was. Nothing short of the death of the Son of God could do that. And so when you look to your own righteousness, you're refusing what the cross actually is trying to say to you and trying to give to you. You're showing that your your heart is alienated from his heart and you're hostile to him. So that's who we all once were. But something happened to change that if you're a believer, if you're a Christian. And it wasn't your cleverness; it wasn't anything related to you. Verse twenty-two says, "He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death." We see there; it's it's a work of Jesus. He has reconciled you through His physical death by God's mercy. When this good news comes to you, when it came to you, He opened up your eyes to see your sin. He opened up your eyes to see how. Your good works were nothing but filthy rags. He opened up your eyes to despair of your self-salvation attempts. And he also opened up your eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. What he has done for you. That he has died for you. That he has reconciled you to God. And so Paul is saying to the Colossians, remember who you were. And remember what Christ has done. Remember all that Christ has done for you. What have these false teachers offered that's better than that. That's what Paul's reminding them. <clears throat> and finally, Paul tells us, tells the Colossians where they're headed in Christ. This is where we start to see our hope as we consider who we are in Christ. Jesus it says, Jesus has reconciled us. This is the flow of the text. Jesus has reconciled us. Why? What was the end goal of of Christ, undertaking the work of creation and undertaking the work of redemption, what was it all for? Paul says, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. So what's the end goal? It's you. It's to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before his father. You have to stop and think of the wonder of that the joy of that, that Jesus undertook the work of creation and the work of sustaining all things and the incredibly hard work of redemption, which called for living a perfect life, dying for the sins of the world, rising again, all for the sake of one day presenting you holy and blameless to the Father. Like there is an eagerness, not just on our end to be redeemed to be sanctified, to be washed, to be rid of the sin nature that we, that we hate so much. To be clothed in the righteousness of God. There's an eagerness on our end for sure. But you've got to see there's an eagerness on Jesus' end as well to present us holy to his Father. He's longing for it. Zephaniah uh, chapter 3 verse 17 says that he will rejoice over you with gladness and with loud singing. It is this joy... Jesus' own future joy to present you holy and complete before God. That's what that joy fuels us in the here and now to live with faithful tenacity and to live with extravagant, self giving love. And some of you are are so weighed down by shame, by your shame, that you need to look up and hear this. If, If you're in Christ, Jesus will with great joy and perfect kindness grab you by the arm on that day and usher you to the Father and say, Father, look, here she is at last. She believed on me on earth, and I have taken away all her sins and given her my own glory. See, she's flawless. She's perfect. She's made perfect in my love. Isn't she stunning? That's where Jesus is is steering all of human history now. Now that he's at the right hand of God the Father. He's steering it all towards a wedding feast. He's taking all his supremacy, all his power, and he's taking his power and he's reigning in that direction. And he's eager for this day. He's eager to bring it about. But what about in verse 23? What about this huge if? We've got to consider that. He reconciled you... In order to present you holy and blameless. And then Paul goes on and says, If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Paul is saying, in light of this great salvation, in light of this great hope that is for those who have faith in Christ, don't shift away from this hope. Don't follow after the false teachers who are leading you away from Christ. So, does, what does this mean theologically? Does this mean we can lose our salvation? No, it doesn't mean you can lose your salvation. Those whom Christ begins a good work in, he will be faithful to complete it at the day of Christ Jesus. That's what Philippians 1.6 affirms for us. But what this does mean, what Paul is trying to say, is that the hallmark of true faith in Christ is Endurance. It's, in, it's perseverance, it's faithfulness over the long haul, faithfulness to the end. And so we have to acknowledge many people can have emotional experiences when they hear about the gospel, but the fruit of true faith is perseverance in Christ, perseverance over the long haul. Thus, Paul is warning the Colossians. He's, he's not doubting their salvation, but he's warning them saying, like, do not depart from this faith. Don't shift from your hope your hope that's in Christ alone. Because to do that is evidence that you don't have true faith at all. It's evidence that you've never really had faith because true faith always perseveres. So this doesn't mean we don't go through seasons of doubt. It just means that we don't live in doubt. Faith perseveres. And this, again, is not because our faith perseveres, not because of our awesomeness, but because of Jesus' awesomeness. It's because of him that we're held fast and kept all the way to glory. So what are we to do practically with this if? This if is calling us to think about how to wisely use our time from the time that we've become Christians to when we go home to be with the Lord. It's, it's just like a marriage. We've been brought together as one to Jesus Christ. If you've been married, you've had the wedding, but now... What are you going to do to set up a good marriage? Are you setting up yourself to grow in intimacy? To continue growing in love and appreciation for one another? Are you you doing that? That, That's hard work. That takes commitment. That takes planning. That takes saying no to a lot of things. That takes intentionality. It, It doesn't just happen. So let me ask you, if you've been united with Christ, united to Christ, what are you doing in your life right now to help you persevere in the faith? What are the graces that He has given that you've neglected? You know, the graces of His Word, His prayer, fellowship. What are sins that you've embraced that you need to put to death? How can you set yourself up to endure? How can you set yourself up to continue in the faith? And The ultimate answer to that is Christ's supremacy. Christ's supremacy is your comfort because he is supreme. And he as our head has already gone through death and opened up to us new life. We have comfort and hope. He's the head of the body who has already made it out of the tunnel. And he has borne the worst of it so that when we go through death, it opens not up to darkness. It opens not up to nothingness, but it opens up to the face of Jesus Christ. We, when, when we're there, when that happens, The first face we see is a human face. It's Jesus' face. The image of the invisible God. Christ's supremacy is your comfort. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that in and of ourselves we are insufficient, but we belong to a supreme, a powerful, willing, good kind, faithful, committed Savior. Help us wherever we may find ourselves to be off in our lives and the way we live our lives. Help us to lift our eyes to Jesus Christ and to be caught up in the joy of who He is, that we might be encouraged, that we might continue in the faith, uh, eagerly looking forward to that day when we get to be reunited with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.